Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Feels weird reintroducing myself, so, but I sort of have to do it because I'm being recorded. So, hi, my name's Brett. Sorry. Okay, so we are in Advent. And technically we're in week three of Advent, but because we finished the book of Ephesians the final week of November, so we're actually only in week two um, in our preaching series of four. Um, And so we're in hope today. Now, the word Advent means coming or arrival Um, And it's the period of preparation, obviously, for the birth of Jesus at Christmas. Um, And like I said, we're in hope this this evening. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that anyone who is among the living has hope. So hope characterises the living. While a person is alive... They can hope. But the question we need to ask is, is there any real basis for our hope? Can hope be certain? The worldly definition of hope, or the the modern idea of it, is to wish for something but without certainty of fulfilment, to desire very much for something with no real assurance of actually getting it. An example of this is when we sit at home on a Saturday afternoon in summertime and the girls hear that bling, 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 you know that within a few kilometre radius that there's some sort of ice cream delivery system happening, which obviously increases my daughter's hope. And they hope a couple of things. Their first hope is that the ice cream van will actually come down our street. And the second hope is that if they ask for an ice cream, if the ice cream van comes down our street, that'll actually say yes. Now, considering how anti-sugar I am, it's not a great deal of hope or certainty. But that's what technically worldly hope is. That we hope for something and there's no real sort of basis of its certainty, so there's really no guarantee that what the world hopes in will come to pass. The biblical definition of hope is different because it's an indication of certainty. Hope in scripture, by definition, has a strong and confident expectation of fulfilment that what God has promised in his word has occurred. 
that will come to pass if it hasn't already come to pass. So how are we as Christians who hope that what this book says is based on anything, how, how do we know that, that it's certain? How do we know that the hope that we think we have isn't the same hope that my kids have in ice cream trucks? But like those in the Old Testament, we need to look back in order to look forward. You can only have a sure certainty of hope if the one that you have hope in is trustworthy and reliable and has demonstrated that they are fit for such a hope. So although we're in Advent and Christmas is in a couple of weeks, we're actually not going to start today in Jesus' birth, but we're actually going to start in his baptism some 30 years later. More specifically than that, we're actually going to start in the words of John the Baptist because his words are words of expectation. His words are words of advent. Now, all four Gospels attribute the words of um, John to the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 40, verse 3. But let's just go to Luke first. So just so you know, there will not be any Scripture verses up on the screen. I am reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, I'm going to throw a lot of Bible at you today, so either write it down, try and follow, or just listen. Chapter 3 in Luke, verses 4 to 6. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of, for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Now, in order to know what John the Baptist is actually talking about here, we actually need to understand what the original prophet was saying. And so back into the Old Testament we go to Isaiah 40. Chapter, sorry, chapter 40, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. Comfort... Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labour is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. 
Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be levelled. The uneven ground will be, become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, uh, Isaiah 40 is actually the introduction chapter to the third major division in Isaiah that goes from chapter 40 through to uh, chapter 55, and it has two main parts. The first part, which is chapter 41 to chapter 48, addresses Israel's captivity in Babylon and God's desire and capacity to deliver them. The second half of this section, this division, is from chapter 59 to 55, yeah, 49 to 55, sorry, which speaks to the sin that got them into the, the dilemma in the first place. Now, in chapter 40, God doesn't speak of judgment, but he speaks of comfort, that he will deliver them, that they will be able to then tell the world of their deliverance. The dominant idea in chapter 40 is that of the undeserved grace of God. That God will deliver his people without any merit on their part and this will motivate them to trust him and to cast themselves onto him without any reservation. Now the exile into Babylon was only to punish them. It wasn't meant to destroy them. And now that their punishment is over, God has a word of hope and comfort for them, not of judgment. The way that we speak about when people read it, often think that the way is being prepared for the people to come home, but it's not. The way that's being prepared is for the Lord. It is God who comes to helpless Israel's side to set her free. And nothing can prevent his swift coming to his people aid. The mountains will be flattened, the valleys will be risen, and the highway is made level and straight so that God can come swiftly. The people can't help themselves. And there is no one else who can accept God. So God must come. But our story of the exile doesn't actually begin at the exile. Our story of the exile actually begins in Genesis. From the beginning, God created and provided a place for his people to dwell. But they sinned, and due to their disobedience, they were exiled forever. Now, by Genesis 6, we read that God regretted creating mankind at all, hence the flood and Noah. And once humanity is restored, we come to the people building the Tower of Babel, or Babylon which is a city of pride and idolatry. The people are sent out from there. God confuses their language 
And eventually, a person called Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, is called. Now, I'm talking about these events like they're a week apart, but they're usually hundreds of years. So I've skipped over a few thousand probably years of history in the Bible within 12 minutes. And I'm doing well. Now, Abraham is called by God and God makes a covenant with him. Now, the covenant that God made with Abraham is what we call an unconditional covenant. It means that God simply promises to do something, that there is no conditions for the people to actually fulfill. So God promised Abraham land, which we now know as Palestine or the promised land. He promised him seed, that he would give him a son and large family, and he promised him blessing, that he would bless Abraham and all the people of the world through him. When we skip over a few more hundred years, we come to the book of Exodus. Now, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Israelites are in slavery. God hears their cry, and through Moses and his leadership, they escape Israel and end up in the desert, which by reckoning from there to the promised land was a week or two's walk, but they spent a generation wandering there. God hears their cry and rescues them. And it's in the desert where God reveals himself to the nation of Israel. He establishes the covenant-keeping God. Or he's, sorry, he establishes himself as the covenant-keeping God who hears Israel's cry. He establishes his father-son relationship with them. He brings them out of slavery to worship him. He plunders their enemies and gives them a land flowing with milk and honey. God becomes their redeemer, their saviour, their deliverer and their rock. Through his mighty arm and outstretched hand, Yahweh shows himself to be the mighty warrior Lord over creation, over all of the nations and all of their gods. Yahweh is the merciful redeemer and judicial warrior. In the desert, Yahweh reveals himself, reveals his glory and makes his name known. Now, it's in the desert at Mount Sinai that God makes another covenant with the people of Israel, which we know as the Mosaic Covenant. Now, unlike the Abrahamic Covenant, this covenant was conditional. It had an if-then clause. If the people do this, then God will do that. And this is where we begin to get into the blessings and curses cycle of the Old Testament. The people had promised to obey the law. And if the people obeyed the law, then God blessed them. If they didn't and disobeyed God's law, then God cursed them. Now, the Israelites were a people 
who were called out to serve their God and to live out a covenant relationship directly with him. The Abrahamic covenant was permanent. The Mosaic covenant was temporary. It enabled the nation of Israel to govern itself until the Messiah came. Matthew 5.17, we won't go there, but Matthew 5.17 shows us that Jesus is the fulfilment of the Mosaic covenant. So when we come to the exile all those generations later, Israel's still in that blessing curses cycle. If they uphold covenant, God blesses them. If they disobey, God curses them. And due to their disobedience, they found themselves out of their homeland and in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem has been razed, the temple has been destroyed, and everything that defined them as a people is now gone. When the people eventually return, God comforts them or offers them comfort, but nothing really changes for them. They were still oppressed. They still acted in the same corrupt manner which they had previously. They're back in their promised land, but they're effectively still in exile. There are people disconnected and longing for something more. They were broken, but they had hope. And their hope was based in the revealed character of God. Now, the only way that the Israelites in this time frame could look forward was if they looked back. They had to remember the character of God and his promises. God was their basis of hope because of his revealed character. The past deeds of his salvation, which was first disclosed at the Exodus, that Yahweh saves. And if we turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners. You have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. The covenant that he made with them was the basis of their hope. And their hope was this, that one day God would send a saviour, that he would send a king to rescue them and that he would rescue the world along with them out of exile. And this king was called the Messiah. Chapter 9. Sorry, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For us a child... For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness and now, from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord's armies will accomplish this. 
God's faithfulness repeatedly shown to the people over and over and over again was what kept them in their hope. God's faithfulness is the currency of biblical hope. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. I feel some of you sitting there going, why on earth have you just given me that lesson? But now that we have an awareness of this, let's go back to John the Baptist and remember the words that he said. Where am I? Luke. First going to go to Luke 1. Don't mind me. It's important to understand what Luke's ministry, sorry, what John the Baptist's ministry is. Luke 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 15. For he will be great in the sight. So this is a uh, prediction of John's birth uh, from the angel Gabriel. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord and their God. John's ministry was to make for the Lord a ready people. That's, who he was, that's what he was for. We go to Mark 1. Same words as what I read originally with Luke. Chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will, be pre- he will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. God is sending a messenger who will prepare a way for the Messiah. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness calling us to prepare a way for the Lord and make a path straight. Now, when we look back to Isaiah 40, chapter, chapter 40, verses 4, that every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be levelled. Prepare a roadway, clear away the obstacles. Now, these aren't nativity words, but these are advent words. Prepare, get ready. Someone is coming. We need to get ready. Further down, Mark chapter 1, verse 7. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, when he says this, we need to remember that later on in Luke chapter 7 and in Mark chapter 11, that Jesus speaks about John the Baptist, that he is the greatest man ever born of a woman. The greatest man ever born of a woman is not worthy to deal with the Messiah in the way that this is describing. The one who is coming after him. 
And so John appears in the wilderness, calling the people to repent. And they do. In their droves. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The words of the prophet Isaiah, the people got it. Something magnificent is happening here. Someone's coming. We better get ready. John being in the wilderness is also significant. The wilderness has been a place of God's gathering and deliverance of his people for generations, from slavery, from Egypt, so on and so forth. John is presenting himself as the herald of the new exodus, that God is about to redeem his people from captivity as he did in the days of Moses. John the Baptist is the herald for the coming kingdom of God. And as he says in Matthew 3 verse 2, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what's John doing? If you can picture history as a whole bunch of strings that stretch back to time past. And he's grabbing hold of these strings, reaching back into history thousands and thousands of years. He's grabbing the meaning of creation, the expulsion from the garden. He's grabbing the exodus from Egypt, the 40 years in the desert, the eventual entry into the promised land. He's grabbing the exile and the eventual return from Babylon. He's taking all of the promises of God in all of these experiences, all of these thousand years of history, generation upon generation of promise and covenantal faithfulness on behalf of Yahweh. He's taking them all and in this one moment, He's laying them at the feet of Jesus and he points to him and he says, this is the one to whom all of this points. He is the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. John chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes, comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from, a, from heaven like a dove and, rested, and he rested on him. 
I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So what does this baby in a manger represent? What hope does he have for us? And our hope is not that these things will happen, but that through the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, that they have happened and that those who are in him are partakers and recipients of the new life, the new promise and the new covenant. So what does this hope give us? What does this baby in a manger represent? First Peter, chapter 1. He represents new birth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. John chapter 1 says something similar, that it's his mercy and not our doing that we have been given birth into a new hope, that we are not reborn to discover a new religion, but that we are reborn to discover a new life. Now, a book that we should all be familiar with, Ephesians. New Life, chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshy desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. We were alienated from the one who gives life, and it is through our relationship with Christ that God made us alive, that he saved us, that he raised us, and that he seated us with him. It is no merit on our part at all, but God. John chapter 3 says something similar. John chapter 6, verse 63 says that it is the spirit that gives life. We have no life in ourselves or of ourselves outside of the spirit. Those who do not have the Spirit are not alive. That is the hope that we have in Christ. 
This baby in a manger also represents new creation. Now, new creation sort of comes in two forms. It comes in a, in a now and it comes in a not yet. Back to our favourite book, Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says something similar, that those in Christ are a new creation. There isn't Jew, there isn't Gentile, there isn't male, there isn't female, slave or free. There is one humanity and those, that humanity that is alive in Christ and the result of that is peace. That is our present reality and that is our hope. The second form of new creation comes in the form of new heavens and new earth. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The old heaven and the old earth have departed along with the sea. Now, not expecting anyone to remember this. The only reason why I remembered it is because I preached it maybe two years ago. Um, when we were doing Mark, and we're in chapter 4, and we were talking about uh, Jesus and his disciples crossing the sea, um, and Jesus calmed the storm. Does anyone trigger any memories? Um, and so the imagery that we have of the sea, so the biblical imagery and the ancient Near Eastern imagery of the sea is that of chaos, is that of cosmic upheaval, is that of Dominic oppression or opposition to God. And in this new creation, the sea is no more. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do what is... It's actually, no, that's no, that's First Peter. Sorry. I wonder why that didn't make any sense. Chapter 3, Second Peter. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever... Sorry, I'm in First John. Ha, third time lucky. Second Peter, chapter 3. I apologise. I've had a migraine all day. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be dis disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming because on that day the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. 
but based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. The new heavens and the new earth are where cosmic upheaval and demonic oppression are no more. A place where righteousness dwells and people live in peace. That's our new hope. What does this baby in a manger represent? It represents a new covenant. Now, the new covenant was promised in Jeremiah 31, but it was explained and expanded in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We're almost there, I swear. From verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For it is that first covenant, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one, but finding fault with his people, he says. See, the days of the Lord are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For each person will not teach his fellow citizens and each brother and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoings and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. It contains God's unconditional commitment to forgiveness of sins. It's eternal. Hebrews 9.15 tells us that. And Jesus is the covenant surety. Hebrews 17.22 tells us that. We have hope because Christ is in heaven right now. And we are waiting on him to bring about our salvation. That's what the baby in the manger represents. So when we speak of biblical hope, it's important that we don't park our ice cream vans in a place that isn't grounded in God's story. If you begin at the end, you miss the precious fact that Jesus' birth and life had meaning and significance beyond the questions of, what does this do for me? The birth of Jesus, his life and his death and resurrection is the answer to all of the questions posed in the Bible. The expulsion from the garden, slavery in Egypt, the exodus through the wilderness, the entry into the promised land, the exile to Babylon, the return to Jerusalem, 
the problem of sin, the question of who am I, the question of what will happen to me, what does my future hold, and all the other questions that I haven't mentioned here. All of these questions as to who is this God that we serve and what that means for us individually, as a community, as a race of people, are found in the manger at the birth of the one who is king, who is the hope for humankind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that the surety of our hope in you isn't a baseless hope or wistful thinking. Heavenly Father, I thank you that through your word, you tell us who you are, you reveal your character to us, and in that we have surety. Father, I thank you that each person here is loved by you, is called by you. And Father, as we are in the midst of this Advent season, that you give them a fresh revelation of who you are, your love for them, and the hope that you pose for their individual lives, but also the lives of everyone on this planet, both past, present, and future, that you are our only hope. We thank you that you are a God who is sure. We thank you that you are a God that is stable, that is consistent with who you have revealed yourself to be. We thank you that you love us and that you are full of grace and mercy towards us. We praise your name. Amen.